Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. I think learning sort of operates at different levels. There's there's learning that you can do around um, skills and proficiencies, you know, like training on how to think more systemically, et cetera. But then there's also just learning as a culture and learning as a practice and a belief, you know, a belief that we cannot do our job well unless as part of everything that we do, we're building in time for reflection, honest reflection that includes lots of different voices as well. That's really central to CPI's view. You know, you can't learn effectively if you've only got three executives in a room. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm pleased to announce that the winner of our Shared Value Summit ticket competition is Joel Hanna of Cranbourne Shire. When asked what is the future you seek, Joel replied in summary, I choose a future full of joy and freedom for all peoples. A future where your social, economic or geographical context has nothing to do with your access to healthcare, education and a fair and equitable starting point in life. I love this response and I'd be proud to be part of such a future. So Joel and a guest of his choosing will join myself and my sparky pal for a fun-filled day at the Shared Value Summit. Tickets are still available, of course, and you can head to the Shared Value Project website to learn more. Today on Humans of Purpose, my guest is Thea Snow. Thea is the Director of the Centre for Public Impact Australia and New Zealand. The Centre for Public Impact works with governments, public servants and other changemakers to reimagine government and turn ideas into action so that government works for everyone. Thea and the team at CPI are working to reimagine government. Citizens, public servants and other changemakers are shaping a new future for government, one that embraces complexity, values relationships and prioritises learning. This was a great conversation with Thea, who has seemingly been working for most of her life in areas of public impact in one form or another. She has a wealth of experience and rich perspectives from these experiences to share, placing her in the ideal position to start to drive the reimagining of government that we so desperately need. A key takeaway from our conversation is the importance of enabling an engaged public service that is able to participate in bold conversations about change and impact without fear or reprisal of breaking ranks. This is ultimately going to be a key driver to better quality thinking, decision making and priority setting in government. In speaking with Thea, it was hard for me not to think about my own exit from the public service, precisely because it was not a mature enough organisation to support an individual running a podcast that is aimed at helping people build better lives, more meaningful careers and have a greater social impact. Since sharing my story, I've been contacted by a number of public servants facing similar issues to mine who are considering leaving the public service. They are being being strongly discouraged from living a full and meaningful life outside of their work hours. My view is that if we want to have a great public service, we need to attract and retain top talent. Talented people often live portfolio lives and are not just satisfied in their day jobs, but in spending their after hours time engaging in public and civic discourse, social contribution, and a range of activities aimed at improving our experience of democracy in the 21st century. I've linked the recent age article on this for those who wish to learn more about my situation. Also keep your eyes peeled for an article written by my friend Kieran Pender in the Canberra Times today, exploring these issues and specifically my case too. Kieran will be coming on the podcast soon to further discuss what employers can and cannot regulate when it comes to our private lives or what is left of them. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Thea as much as I did. 
So, Thea, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be with you finally. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. We've had a couple of uh, little coffees <laughs> over the months, but they're, ne- they're never quite close enough together to lock in a podcast, but now it's happened. Yep. So We're, We've made it. <laughs> we've made it happen. Um, before we get started and talk about where you're at now, mm-hmm. I'd love you to talk to me a bit about your journey. Uh, I think you've had a really interesting career starting out in the law, and I'm not going to like try and summarize it. <laughs> I'll let you tell, you tell your story. Cool. Sounds great. So, yeah, I studied arts law um, really because I didn't know what else to study, to be totally honest with you, and I felt that it was a good all-round education, um, which I've learned is something that's quite particular to Australia, actually. Not many other countries do that. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, And when I finished law, I, um, I thought I wanted to be a human rights lawyer. So uh, I went into a big firm, um, Mallison, King and Wood Mallison's, it's called now. You've got to go through all the name updates. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And um, that was a fantastic experience because actually going into a really big corporate law firm gave me a, a whole lot of opportunities to do pro bono work. And so I got very involved in the human rights law group. But what I realised through that work is that actually when you're a human rights lawyer, what you're stuck doing is working within the constraints of the laws as they're crafted. And sometimes those laws feel incredibly unfair and unjust and produce perverse outcomes. So I realised that actually where I wanted to be was in the place that made the laws, which is government. Um, And I realised that really through a whole lot of conversations with people. I just started exploring different roles and it's not like I sort of had clarity without a whole lot of conversations and and guidance from really wise people. So I moved to Department of Premier and Cabinet in Social Policy and worked there on and off for about four years um, while I had my – and I had my first child while I was there – and then moved to Department of Education and was there for about four years as well um, while I had a second baby and then got pregnant with my third. Um, And I guess towards the end of my time in government, I started to feel quite frustrated. Um, And I think that the frustration stemmed from the fact that in my life outside of work, I was meeting a bunch of really impressive, dynamic entrepreneurs who were working in social enterprise and trying to solve the same challenges that government was trying to solve. And yet what we did in government was work in such siloed ways. We didn't draw on the expertise and insight and skills and dynamism of people outside government. And there were a few things that I tried where I sort of tried to bring their voices in and I just wasn't able to do that. So then as a family, we decided to move to London and I thought that's what I want to explore while we're in London. I want to, I want to explore this idea of why government doesn't collaborate better with people outside of government and how it could be doing that more effectively. So we went over to London uh, and I enrolled to study a Master's of Public Policy and Administration at the LSE. And, um, and then about six weeks into the course... I realised that it wasn't going to give me all of the things that I was looking for, which was not only um, an opportunity to explore this theoretically, but also an opportunity to explore it in practice. So I started to look for some work and um, I saw a role at Nesta, which was around the Inclusive Economy Partnership, which was a vision to bring together government, social enterprise and social entrepreneurs and big business 
to see how together in a more collaborative way they could solve social challenges. And I thought I couldn't have written myself a better job. I was going to say, did you go out looking for something like that or is it just sort of serendipitous that that thing exists? It was just serendipitous. It was unbelievable. And so I wrote probably the most compelling cover letter that I've ever written because it was came really from my heart. Just the passion sopping out onto yeah, the paper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and managed to get a role at Nesta and then worked in the government innovation team at Nesta for the period of time that we were in London and actually ended up in data and tech. So that was completely new to me, but that was the team that I landed in, which was just wonderful. Um, but I guess while I was there, I also started... Um, asking questions about the limitations of data and tech. And the story that I like to tell is, you know, we had this really impressive presentation from um, a a lead of New Orleans analytics team in the New Orleans local government. And he was talking about smoke alarms and how they used data analytics to identify which streets were most in need of smoke alarms in order to be able to dis- distribute them most efficiently and effectively. So they they did that and they did an amazing job and they pinpointed the streets and they handed out the alarms, which resulted in far less fatalities as a result of house fires. But the problem for me was that the people who are sort of advocates of analytics stop at that point and it's like job done, we've handed out fire alarms. Whereas for me the question is, why don't those streets have fire alarms and what can we be doing? What's the next step that needs to be taken once you've given the fire alarms to address the underlying systemic issues which lead to there not being fire alarms in those streets in the first place? And it was really through that work that I became very interested in the work of the Centre for Public Impact, which thinks about those questions of what beliefs underpin how government does its business, and how can we be encouraging governments to think more systemically about their roles? So moving beyond technical fixes to thinking really holistically about the challenges that we're facing, which again links in a sort of slightly tangential way but to the the initial question that I was asking around collaboration, humility, um, drawing on on different forms of expertise, etc. So that's how I've landed here. So the part that you're interested in is that sort of like collaborative solution making in a way. Yeah, I think it's evolved since then, um, but I think that uh, really. So what we talk about at the Centre for Public Impact is the idea that um, governments tend to treat all sorts of challenges as though they are complicated. In other words, if you can gather enough data and do some number crunching and do really sophisticated analysis and planning, then you will be able to solve that problem. But the reality is that um, there are complex or wicked problems that just don't work like that. And it doesn't matter how much data you gather and it doesn't matter how much planning you do, you're never going to be able to, you know, solve that problem in inverted commas. And so... The question then becomes, well, what do you do? What does a better way of working look like in in complexity? And at CPI we propose an approach to public management or to, to doing government that embraces complexity, which means thinking systemically, um, nurturing relationships between people, and that's where the collaboration bit comes in, and um, and 
really anchoring everything in a culture and practice of learning. So maybe let's talk a little bit about the Centre for Public Impact, its inception in Australia New Zealand, Mm -hmm. and sort of the relationship to Boston Consulting Group. Yeah, sure. So um, I met, as I mentioned, I met the Centre for Public Impact crew while I was in London, and um, Danny Berkeley, who's sadly no longer with CPI, um, and Adrian Brown, who's our executive director, I had had an, a couple of coffees with them while I was over there because I was really interested in their work. I'm sure they're very interested in your work at Nesta as well. Yeah, thank, well, Nesta and CPI actually collaborated on quite a number of projects, and um, they were part of um, a, a big event that I sort of managed, the Government Innovation Big Hitter event, we called it. Um, where CPI contributed to a, to a book that we wrote about radical ideas for the for the future of government. So there, and there are a number of other projects that that CPI and Nestor have collaborated on. So yes, there was a relationship there. But basically, we came back from London at the beginning of uh, sorry, the end of January 2020, and I spent some time having conversations with people you know, my networks and new people who I'd met um, via Twitter while I'd, while we'd been in London. And over the course of sort of six weeks before the world shut down, really identified an opportunity and a gap to be having this conversation about what it means to reimagine government in Australia so um, I knew that there was an interest in CPI in establishing itself in Australia um, because our, the, chair of, um, the chair of our board, Larry Kaminer, is Australian. And so I actually reached out to Adrian and said, I feel like there's space in the Australian market for this conversation and I'd love to have a go. You pulled the trigger. Pulled the trigger. You went, you went straight for the jugular. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so talk just a bit, a bit about, you know, what does it take? Is it sort of like um, putting a bit of a jigsaw puzzle together? I mean, you have to have quite a strategic entrepreneurial lens to things. And I think you, your example is like a, a great demonstration of that. But was it kind of like something that like did everything just mesh in the right place and you're like, I have to do this? Yeah. Actually, what happened was I was feeling incredibly confused. And I'd had so many – I'd had conversations with – public servants, because I'm an ex-public servant myself, obviously. I'd had conversations with boutique consultancies and I was just, my head was spinning and I was like, I don't know what to do. And then I was lying in bed one night with a spinning head thinking, I don't know what to do. And I actually just paused and I said to myself, what would I love to do? What would my dream job be? And I thought starting CPI in Australia. And the next day I reached out to Adrian. So it was you know, chutzpah. <laughs> How far did you go in terms of um, the detail you provided? Did you bullet point? Did you have like a, a business plan? Had, like, No. So um, I think the thing about CPI and why it's worked so well for me is because um, I get stuck with business plans because I think now that I reflect on it, they feel impossible to write. Because how do you know what's going to happen and, and how do you know how things are going to plan out, play out? And one of the things I love about CPI is that we believe um, in a much more emergent style of working and what that means is that you try things, you see how they're going, 
you in real time adjust what you're doing and then you continue. And that's a very different approach to a traditional business plan. And that's what we tell encourage governments to do and it's what we do ourselves as well. And that was another thing that really appealed to me about CPI. So CPI runs as a self-managed organisation, which I found fascinating and also um, makes a lot of sense to me, you know, like to do away with hierarchies and to enable people to thrive and to work in ways that suit them. And um, I think that the the ethos that we preach in CPI, we also practice. So my conversation with Adrian was, let me give it a go. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll start having conversations with people and let's see where it lands. Now, obviously for some people that would be completely unfathomable, but I felt that Adrian was the right kind of person to have that conversation with. And that's really characterized everything I've done since then. It's Mm. just been a very emergent process where, and very relational process where what I do is I, I build relationships with people. We have interesting conversations. We find areas of joint interest and then we find things to work on together rather than being um, really structured and planned and, and, and rigid. And even when I write a proposal, for example, um, to do a piece of work, we always frame it as being an emergent process. This is, this is a sort of these are the ideas we want to explore but we recognise that things may change and may need to change because if you predefine at the beginning of a project precisely where you want to end up, you can't end up in the right spot. Mm. I can give you the perfect like example from my world of that. Yeah, great. It's like with some podcast guests, they want you to um, send them a list of exactly what question is you're going to ask them at every point during the conversation. And that to me just sounds like how can you have like part of the beauty of a conversation is you don't know where it's going to go. Exactly. It's the randomness. Exactly. And, and so I sort of had to settle at this middle ground of, if you like, you can send me some bullet points that you'd like to discuss, but there'll be no significant exchange of bullet points up until we have a coffee before the actual podcast. Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know, I hope that you would have seen, you know, that, that behavior reflected back in my approach today, which was I came, didn't ask any questions before we had a chat and here we are because I agree with you. I think that more interesting things emerge when you do things that way. But what's really critical um, when you adopt an emergent approach to anything is the learning part because if you're not observing what's happening and responding to that, then, then the approach becomes far less effective than it otherwise can be. That's very well said. So it's time to reimagine government. Citizens, public servants and other changemakers are shaping a a new future for government, one that embraces complexity, values relationships and prioritises learning. It's it's a really profound mission statement and I think it resonates on a lot of levels. What what do you think of or what do you mean when you say public impact? It's a it's a really good question. Um and I think to be totally honest with you, that's potentially somewhat of a legacy title because when CPI was born five or six years ago, um, it was set up by Boston Consulting Group as an independent charitable charity um, as the Centre for Public Impact. And precisely what that meant was to be defined. Um, And 
over the past five or six years, CPI has been really refining and narrowing down on what that means. And that's actually a very live conversation that we're having at the moment because whereas when we started, the vision was we want to be a centre which um, convenes conversations that are creating good for the world um, and and sort of foster new relationships in, in very general terms, where we've really narrowed down to is, no, actually what we are is an organisation that cares about how government, the role of government in the world and how government functions and why it's um, not optimised at the moment to really support um, us as a society to address complex social challenges in the way it, it could be. Great answer. Are you, in the solution making that you're doing, are you consulting to government and government departments or are you more creating learning frameworks and events sort of in partnership? Mm. So we don't, we don't consult. Um, we work alongside government departments in different ways. Um, Obviously, it's very new in Australia. I've I've been working with CPI in Australia. I spent all of last year doing it myself and just recently have brought on a colleague um, to join me. Um, so one of the projects that we did, for example, was with the Australian Tax Office where we explored the idea of system stewardship. So what does it mean for the ATO not to um, see itself as a tax revenue collection office but to see itself as the steward of a tax and superannuation ecosystem. And really for the purposes of that project, what I felt that my role was was to listen. Um, You know, I was a neutral person who they were able to bring in to have lots of conversations with lots of people and then synthesise that into some a report and some frameworks to help them take that forward. But the final report that I produced was was co-authored with the ATO design team. So that's the way that we work. And then more recently, again, we've been developing a theory of change at CPI and the way that we're conceiving of ourselves now is as a learning partner because what we keep hearing our government partners say is we're so busy delivering, we don't have time to reflect and learn and improve. Yep. And as I was saying before, the only way to work effectively in complexity, you can plan till the cows come home, mm-hmm. but you're never going to get it right because Mm. that's not what a complex system is. A complex system is like a flock of birds. You know, it is a dynamic, ever-changing, unpredictable thing. And so to effectively engage and to steer a complex system towards the kind of, uh, you know, uh, outcomes, I guess, that you want it to to start shifting towards, you need a culture of learning and government's, find it really hard to embed that. And so what we're exploring is could we be that partner? Could we walk alongside government agencies and give them tools and processes and practices and and rituals to apply to support them to become learning organisations? Such an important role because I think it's become, you know, as a public servant myself and previously many years ago in the public service, people just weren't that interested in putting you into training or education Mm. to become better at your job. It was just sort of like you're here for a certain amount of time and you just have to learn to get better at everything, but we're not going to actually make the effort to educate you. At most, we might send you to like an IPA or an ANSOG um, seminar, Mm. 
very occasionally you'll hear from a guest speaker, mm. but there's not there was never that learning partnership opportunity mm. that I think would have been really exciting. Mm. Yeah, well, that's great feedback, and I think that I think learning sort of operates at different levels. There's there's learning that you can do around um, skills and proficiencies, you know, like training on how to think more systemically, etc. But then there's also just learning as a culture and learning as a mm. practice and a belief, you know, a belief that we cannot do our job well unless as part of everything that we do, we're building in time for reflection, honest reflection, that includes lots of different voices as well. That's really central to CPI's view. You know, you can't learn effectively if you've only got three executives in a room. What learning requires is a whole lot of voices in a room who experience the system differently. So imagine a process where you're trying to understand how a particular policy is playing out or being implemented on the ground you know what tends to happen is there's an idc with you know with risk risk matrices and and data dashboards and like where are the voices of the people on the ground who are experiencing what that policy feels like in practice they need to be in that room Mm. they need to be part of the learning experience and so learning requires different voices and an open-mindedness and a, a humility that um that is often lacking, I think, sadly, in government. That's very well said. And, I mean, part of the challenge for public servants is there's a pretty uh, broad and wide-reaching code of conduct that's placed upon us um, as part of being in a role uh, that might make it hard to really engage in some of that critical thought around the role of government and specifically of certain departments and how they can maybe be more efficient or inefficient enough. Um, so how do you sort of get that balance right with wanting to be a learning partner at involving public servants, but public servants also being have to be really careful mm. in the current climate of what they can say or can't say? Yeah, I think that's spot on. I mean, again, there are sort of two sides of that coin. There's what a public servant can say inside and what a public servant can say outside. Even inside, there are significant limitations to what public servants can say. And that's because of a lack of psychological safety and it's also because of enormous risk aversion and fear of failure and how incentives are set up in government. You know, you succeed as a public servant not if you're thinking really hard about things and and interrogating the, the underlying foundations upon which a, a policy may have been designed. You succeed if you're smashing through and can demonstrate that you're hitting KPIs and um, that's a fundamental problem because you can't have honest conversations when the when the system is structured that way. And we've actually just published a blog recently called um, Public Sector Porkies, which was about exactly that, about why as a public servant you're actually often incentivized to lie rather than tell the truth because of these structural totally, barriers. Totally. And, and I think one thing that's really interesting, you said, you know, what happens inside and what happens outside. But then I think, hold on, is Twitter and my opinion on things on Twitter um, inside or outside? Mm. And what about broadcasting? Like if I have an email list or a podcast, um, would it, is it okay for me to share my thoughts as Mike Davis, yeah. who's not a public servant at the moment? Yeah. Because it's now 6 p.m., it's a weeknight, work's finished. Um, you know, can I can I express my own personal thoughts and opinion safely yeah. or should I, you know, when I take off the cape, I'm still Batman? Mm. It's, re- it's, a, it's, a, it's a really important question and I think that 
different public servants interpret that differently. So, for example, in the webinar series that we ran with ANZOG last year on reimagining government and are running again this year, we have some very senior um, public servants, mostly ex-public servants, but also some current public servants who participate as part of that. Um, as part of the webinar series, we have breakout rooms and we invite all of our panellists to be part of the breakout room because that's what we believe in in CPI. That's where the most important conversations happen, where, you know, the panellists shouldn't sit at a different level to the audience. It's all just a conversation. Now, we have some ex-public servants who are so um, bound by that traditional view of the role of the impartial public servant that they decline the invitation to join the conversation. I can definitely imagine that. But we have others who are, who are, I don't know what you want to call it, more radical, less risk averse, less risk averse um, who, who are open to it and who participate. I felt like something that I observed in London was much more at the level of local government, not national government, but much more openness. Um, public servants who had a much greater voice on places like Twitter um, and an ability to um, to 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 be themselves, not with their civil service hat on, but as you know, Mike or Thea. Um, and I found that really interesting. And I haven't really dug into why that is. Whether the the code of conduct is different, whether the legislation is different, I'm not sure. But it was a, a notable difference. My personal view is that um, I lost my voice when I was in government, um, and I found it when I went to London. And that's been a completely liberating thing for me because basically I had a mentor in London who encouraged me to write um, and told me that my thoughts were interesting and valuable and I wasn't a public servant anymore so I could do that. And I gave it a go in a very trepidatious way and found that people were interested in what I had to say and it's just been um, – you know, it's made me a better version of myself and it makes me so sad that there are so many brilliant people probably in the public service who because of this culture of um, keeping things really close can't be their best selves yeah. um, in any facet of their lives. Yeah, it's spot on, spot on. Um where do I want to take this next? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I think I, I, I meant to say that in my head, but it came out, out loud. Well, one thing I am very curious about because I have not been successful in this myself is creating like authentic community of people on Twitter who you can actually then become friends with, mm. but also exchange really important online conversations that then are kind of foundational to what you do next. Yeah. So I started using Twitter in London and I remember calling my brother, Oscar, and saying, I want to start using Twitter because everyone at Nesta used Twitter. But I don't know how. What do I do? And he said, there are different types of Twitter people. If you want to get heaps and heaps of followers, you choose an issue and you just tweet about that. Um, he said, you know, if if you want to um, to be, if you want it to be just personal, you can do that as well. And what he recommended to me was that I look at a bunch of Twitter profiles and just start observing different approaches 
and experimenting with what felt right for me. And again, this is a very CPI approach. It's like you don't plan it out too much in advance. You 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 test the waters, you experiment, you see what type of feedback you get, you see how you feel about it, and then you adjust. So when I started, um, it was all very intellectual and very earnest, mm. you know, like I'd read an interesting article, I'd tweet the article, you know, some a few summary headlines, and that was it. Um, and unsurprisingly, you know, that that wasn't getting a huge amount of traction. And then I thought, what are the? And then I thought back to Oscar's question of like, which which people do I follow who I really like, and why do I like them? And I realised that the people that I like feel authentic, and um, mix a combination of um, idea, you know, ideas, exploration, interesting stuff that they're reading, with also like quite silly things like. You know, last night I I was reading a book with my daughter, The Jolly Postman, such a good book. (laughs) Shout out to Jolly Postman. (laughs) And um, it mentions traveller's checks and I was like, oh, my God, remember traveller's checks? Classic, So I just tweeted, who remembers traveller's checks, you know, and it led to – and then someone I know from Sydney, Mark. That's a great tweet. Thank you. I I, I thought it would go viral. Yeah, Yeah, it didn't go viral. It didn't? No. Did you get a couple of responses? A couple of responses. But I was was hoping for more. But Had I seen it, I would have been all over it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Mike. Yeah, so, you know, I think that having that, you know, those those brain farts, for want of a better word, um, and the personal stuff, like sometimes I don't want to tweet personal stuff, but sometimes – um, it feels right and I just do it. Um, and I think that's how you build authentic connection. Um, when you, um, you know, when, when you are yourself. And the other thing is you need to, you need to give as well as take. In other words, if you want people to engage in your posts, um, a really important thing to do, I think, is, is engage with theirs. So, share comments or thoughts on what other people are writing. But again, like some people are very adversarial on Twitter or very assertive. Um, and I just think there's a lot to be said for humility. I love it. And I think I really like what you said about think about the type of Twitter person that you want to be because mm. that's an Oscar thing. But like, you know, there's lots of, there are lots of different Twitter people. Yes. I, I tend to just enjoy the people who compulsively have to write everything that's happening all the time because it's just really, there's some mundaneness to it that's really appealing. Exactly. Like, hey, I just built this bookshelf in my house. Yes. Hey, here's my cat. Yeah, uh, exactly. You know. And so, you know, and so what you might do is experiment with that for a while mm. and see how it feels for you because I sort of I tweeted in a particular way for a few months and then I sort of read back on it and I was like, ugh, this is gross. <laughs> this is like some earnest you know, like righteous person who's just like reading all the right articles and tweeting about them. That's not who I want to be. And I haven't deleted that. You know, that's part of my history. It's part of who I am. It's mistakes that I made to get me where I am now, which is a much more comfortable place with who I am on Twitter and the connection that that is to who I am in real life as well. This is this is like Twitter gold you've just given us. So whoever has just tuned into the podcast now, rewind about ten minutes, and we've never talked about Twitter for this long on the show. But I think that's some really interesting insights. If CPI doesn't work for me, I might start Twitter workshops. (laughs) I think I think it could be a thing. So you're also partnering with the Three A Institute and doing some interesting work with other partners. But I'm curious around the AI and the ethics of AI that Mm. you're working on now. Yeah, sure. So that actually, um, 
emerged as an interest for me in London, um, unsurprisingly, because I was working as part of the the Nesta um, data and tech team. And I became fascinated in the question of how local government particularly was um, using AI. And the bit that, you know, I'm not technically proficient in AI at all. I don't, can't even code. Um, so the the question that I actually ended up writing my master's dissertation on was how do social workers, you know, who are, who in my mind are drawn to that kind of work because they are so, because they see it as being so innately human, how are social workers using AI tools to help them make decisions around vulnerable children, at-risk children, and how do they how do they feel about the fact that they're being asked to work with AI tools, and how does how they feel influence how they use the tools. So what I found, for example, was that um, quite a few of the social workers who I interviewed, more than one in three, were ignoring the tool. Um, And that's not really something that that people talk about a lot. A lot of the conversation is everyone's going to defer to the tool. Everyone's going to, you know, there's a concept called automation bias where you just assume that what the tool tells you is right. But actually what I found was that when social workers didn't feel a sense of agency um, and didn't feel empowered to use the tool as they, they wanted to and when they didn't understand the tool, their tendency was just to ignore it. Um, so they, you know, they would say things like, I would, I would never change a decision based on what the tool told me. Um, so this fascination with AI has continued because it is becoming more and more pervasive in all different ways in government. It's, it's helping uh, shape policy making. It's helping shape policy implementation. Um, it's helping frontline, you know, police officers, social workers, et cetera, make decisions. So this is a conversation that we need to be having. And um, Loren Ruster, who's a master's student at the 3A Institute, contacted me because she was doing a capstone research project and was really interested in the idea of AI and dignity. And the question that we landed on was how do government AI ethics frameworks reflect the notion of dignity because what we talk about it at um, CPI is this idea that government needs to move away from the idea that it controls things and delivers things and, you know, sees the world as like this this machine that, that we just optimise to seeing itself as a steward, which is the, the language from the ATO project, which the role of government is to enable people to live dignified um, thriving, flourishing lives, which is quite a different conception. And I always quote Hilary Cottam um, and from her book Radical Help, which is just so inspiring, where she speaks about the role of government as head gardener. She says the role of government is planting, tending, nurturing, and where necessary, weeding. And I think that's such a lovely metaphor to, to think about. So the question became, you know, how how does how does government support people to live dignified lives through its AI ethics frameworks? And what we discovered was that there's a lot of provisions. We looked at the Canadian, the UK, and the Australian AI ethics documents, instruments, we called them. And we found that there's a lot of energy and attention placed on 
avoiding dignity violations. In other words, how do we stop people's dignity being harmed? But a lot less on how do we use AI tools to enhance people's dignity. Um, so, for example, you know, and we use Donna Hicks' definition of de- dignity, which I won't go into. But part of it, part of being living a dignified life, is ha- feeling like your voice is being heard. Mm. So, how can AI tools? And there are AI tools that do this. One, there's this great tool called Citizen Lab, which runs out of Belgium, which crowdsources citizen voices to influence government decision-making and then uses AI to find patterns in the data that it gathers from citizens. And, you know, AI ethics frameworks are very good at saying this is what AI shouldn't do and not very good at saying this is what AI should do Mm. to support people to live the kinds of lives that we want them to live. That's really fascinating what you just said. Um, What... When you pitch yourself forward a few months or a year, um, what do you think CPI will be doing and what will have changed? I think that I'm less focused on growth and more focused on the shape that we're taking and the impact that we're having in the world. So I never want to be a big organisation in Australia. Um, But what I hope is that We've been able to, 12 months from now, experiment more with what it means to be a learning partner to government agencies and change makers. And I've got a few projects sort of in conversation at the moment, in development at the moment. They may or may not happen. But I think if they do happen, they'll be wonderful test cases for what it means to be a learning partner. And I really want to refine our skills in in that space and work out what what does it actually look like and do people see value in it and if not what are we going to do so 12 months from now i would hope that we will have experimented with what it means to be a learning partner how we're supporting governments to embrace complexity center their work in human relationships and learning um, and really worked out where we sit in the ecosystem because that's been a really important part for me as well to to make sure that we're complementing what already exists in the ecosystem here rather than trying to nudge people other people doing who are already doing outstanding work out of the way this has been an amazing conversation we could go on for hours <laughs> but uh, I'll leave it there and just ask where can people connect with you and find out more about your work so the CPI website, which is the center, www.centerforpublicimpact.org, um, has my contact details on it, I think. Um, otherwise, I'm at Thea Snow on Twitter um, or just Thea at centerforpublicimpact.org. And Thea is a terrific follow on Twitter, so okay, jump on board. <laughs> Very authentic. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 